worship. When we hear the words that you've given John for us, I pray that our hearts are ready. I pray that, Lord, we can kind of turn everything else in our lives off for a little while that you prepared for us. And I pray, oh, Lord, that this will be a time of of a, a special understanding, you know, Lord, that we, we can come to your table. We can partake of your word because of your sacrifice. Lord, let us go from this place and share the message of Christ. Let us be grateful for all the things that you've given us grateful for the people that provide for us that take care of us and all those people that do all those things that we don't ever think about and we pray oh God that you'll let us walk with you in peace pray these things in Jesus name In the past, that's much better, isn't it? I'm still going to yell at you, but don't don't worry about it. So, uh, I'm back on on the book today differently because I'm just still not quite able to recall things. Uh, likewise, um, y'all know I'm right-handed, so apparently I preached hard at y'all last week, and you all moved over here. It's 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 really kind of funny to watch. Um, it, it's it's that's and what's really funny about that is there's no escaping the right hand of God. So y'all are in trouble this morning. A uh, wise man once said, what we do in moderation, our children will do in excess. Now, I want you to soak in that for a moment. I, I'm not sure who said that. It's, it's, it's an often quoted uh, thing. It, it's not a universal truth, but I think it applies in so many different areas of our life. Uh, and I think we can apply it to Scripture. I think we can apply it to uh, different areas where we have influence or are influenced by people to where what we see what they do, even just in a little bit, we might take it to a new degree. Uh, likewise, this morning, we're going to be covering Jeremiah's chapter 7 through 10. And this is the only slide you're going to see all day today. It's going to stay up there the whole time. Because I'm absolutely going to encourage you to open your Bibles with me this morning. Likewise, I encourage you to open your Bible each and every morning and spend time with the Lord. Jeremiah chapter 7 through 10 is, is often called the Temple Sermon because it's, it is a sermon that's recorded uh, in Scripture. It's one of the best sermons that's actually recorded in Scripture. It is maintained through time for us to be uh, given this clarity for what God is doing there. And in the Temple Sermon, uh, in the... Well, this entire thing, and I loved worship this morning. I loved the song selection that was used. It was almost like we had worked this out uh, to, to talk about this because what really 
Jeremiah is going to call the people to is to say that the root cause of the coming judgment of the Lord is your hypocritical worship. It, it, it is the heartbreaking hypocritical worship. And not only are the people guilty of worshiping idols, they're guilty of teaching their children to do the same thing. And they're passing on to each generation a complacency, a, a, a lower standard of worship that's not worthy of the living God. And so the people in Judah's case, they're arrogant, they're conceited. They, they look back and they say, we're God's chosen people. We're the most favored nation. We're the children of Abraham, the children of Jacob. And that God has declared us to be the very top of all of his creation. And instead of giving thanks to God for such an honor, they use it as an excuse to, to justify their own sins. In some ways, they're literally standing in the, in the temple of the Lord, and they're committing all kinds of sins and informing God that, hey, we're your chosen people with whatever we want to do to, to challenge us on that, for you to discipline of your lovingness. And we don't think that'd be very loving of you, God, if you were to, to chastise your own people. And so they began to worship idols and make sacrifices inside the temple itself, claiming to be a favored nation. They acted like insolent, spoiled children, lacking discipline, respect, and appreciation for the God who had saved them. But God watched over their, arrogant, their, their arrogance and their ignorance. And, and, and what we'll see in, in chapters 7, 8, 9, and 10 is essentially wrapped up in this statement here. God is essentially saying to his people, as long as you live in my house, you'll live under my rules. And I brought you into this world, I'll certainly take you out of it. Dads, does that sound familiar? As long as you live in my house, you'll live according to my rules. As long as you want my protection, as long as you want my blessing, as long as you want my credit card, as long as you drive my car, you'll do what I tell you to do, how I tell you to do it, and hopefully you'll do it with a respectful attitude. But I don't know about you, but what I've found in, 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 in successfully surviving two teenagers is that it's that respectful attitude that just really misses the point, doesn't it? brought you into this world, and I could certainly take you out of it. You have your Bibles with you. I want you to start with me in Jeremiah chapter 7, and I want you to see what is literally happening here. As Jeremiah, the prophet of the Lord, is called by God and said, go down and speak to my people and tell them what's going to happen. And don't you worry, Jeremiah, I'm going to protect my word, I'm going to protect my message, and I'm going to protect my messenger as long as you do what I want you to do, because these people need to hear the truth. It's not going to be easy. You're not going to like it. And by the way, buddy, they're not going to like you much either. But their liking you is far less important than you loving me. Jeremiah chapter 7 verse 1 starts this way. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand at the gate of the Lord's house and there proclaim this message. Hear the word of the Lord, all people of Judah who came through these gates to worship the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Reform your ways and your actions, and I will let you live in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord. If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, inside the temple, and if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place, in the land I gave your ancestors forever and ever. But look, you are trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. 
Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you have not known? And then come and stand before me in my own house, which bears my name, capital N, by the way, in my Bible, I don't know about you, and say, we're safe. Safe to do all these detestable things. Has the house which bears my name become a den of robbers? But I've been watching you. And really, he says, I've been watching you. It's an exclamation point, declares the Lord. You know, it's not uncommon for someone who has embraced the worldly pleasures of sin to rebel against the authority and to act in a way that exposes their true character. Their lack of appreciation for all their benefactor has done for them and even their outright resentment of any form of discipline, criticism that might threaten their lifestyle so that they so vehemently feel, listen to this, entitled to live, not only with God's blessing, but in his house and still require his spiritual blessing as if they somehow deserved it. In the opening of Jeremiah's sermon, he indicated that they had broken at least, listen to this, at least five of the Ten Commandments. What a great progression, right? Adam, do not eat from one tree in the garden. Fail epically. All right, here are ten things I want you to do and not do. Failed epically. All right, here are 613 laws that I want you to not break. Failed epically. Love God and love people. They had broken at least five of the Ten Commandments in the Lord's house. And they had been led to do so by false prophets who tolerated, probably even profited by their sin, who told them that their arrogance in boasting the Lord's protection was okay because, after all, they were in God's house. Isaiah would tell us and Chronicles would tell us that he would remove his name from his house and call it Ichabod, which means the glory has departed. It's the same feeling that many of you get when you walk into church unrepentant of your sin and you don't immediately burst into flames. Do y'all ever feel that way when you come in on Sunday morning? No, John, because this is a gymnasium. It's not a real church. Sadly, the false prophets were not only teaching the people to have faith, to not have faith in God, but they were treating him like a superstitious idol. Now keep in mind, they're going to be exiled and they're going to return and rebuild the temple in about 500 years. And Jesus himself is going to walk into the same temple, into his father's house, tables and chastise them for doing the exact same. So just because you don't burst into flames today, don't worry, it could still happen. But the good news is that God is merciful. And although he's indescribable, he's not unknowable. God's made himself known through his presence, his prophets, his promises, and his word that is true and will be true forever and ever. And in his word, he makes it clear that judgment is required for our sin, that it must be dealt with. But the eternal implications of that judgment are contingent upon our repentant hearts. The temple of the Lord is indeed a holy place. It's it's not a place where sin is tolerated. It's not a place where sin is permitted. It's not a place where sin should be celebrated. In the time of Jeremiah, the temple of the Lord was a physical place, but today the temple of the Lord is the heart of the believer, and it's not a place for false, hypocritical worship that merely attempts to cover up our sins with ritual and fanfare. But instead, it bears fruit in keeping with repentance. A heart like this is thankful 
for how the Lord has provided. A heart like this, this guards itself against pride, against, against hypocrisy, and so much more. A repentant heart is an example of humility and strength, trust, and true worship of God. A repentant heart only seeks God's approval, nobody else's. A repentant heart has no justification for sin. It seeks the Lord's blessing for his soul and not just mercy from his punishment. Unfortunately, in Jeremiah's day, and I, I think confidently today, that repentance is such an archaic concept that we rarely practice it privately in our own lives or publicly in the body of Christ. We as Christians fail to understand that our sin impacts not only our own lives, but the lives of our family, our community, our coworkers, and our society as a whole. We've heard it said more than once in our lifetimes that more is caught than is taught. And it's important that we understand that sometimes, always, someone is always watching. There's always someone looking to you, watching your behavior, finding what is and what isn't acceptable. Do you remember that walks into the sun, listening to the headphones on, and he walks in with a, a, a box full of drug paraphernalia, and he says, who taught you how to do this? And the kid barks back at him in his own house, you, all right, I learned it by watching you. What a terrible indictment of a father having different rules for himself than he has for his own children. And after all, what we do in moderation, our children will do in excess. But what about intentionally teaching our kids to sin? What about normalizing the sin in our own lives and inviting our kids to participate? It's like watching kids on a football field disrespect the ref or disrespect the other team and then looking in the stands and go, well, I know whose kid that is. You, you know the loudmouth mom up there that's hollering about her under-talented kid who deserves some reason to be entitled to be starting as the quarterback when the kid is, you know, 5'8", 260 pounds and can barely get his arm up over. He ought to be the quarterback. That's the most important thing on the team, right? Who taught that kid to go out there and mouth off to the referee? The people of Judah had learned how to worship hypocritically, unfortunately, from the priest, and they taught their kids to do the exact same thing. And from generation to generation to generation, it just got a little worse. Sadly, they made hypocrisy and apostasy a family event. And this angered God to a point, listen to this, he instructed Jeremiah, don't even pray for these people. I'm not going to listen to them. You look with me in verse 16 of chapter 7. He says this, so do not pray for this people nor offer any plea or petition for them. Do not plead with me for I will not listen to you. It seemed like the only person that God was willing to listen to was Jeremiah. And he says, I don't even want to hear it. Do you not see what they are doing in the towns of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem? The children gather the wood, the fathers light the fire, the women knead dough and make cakes to offer to the queen of heaven. They pour out drink offerings to other gods to arouse my anger, but I'm the only, am I the, am I the one they're provoking, declares the Lord? Are they not rather harming themselves? I mean, it, it became such a public event. Hey, kids! We're going to go to church today and worship a false god. Make sure everybody's got everything you need because we're going to do this together. It's one thing to waste God's time with your own worthless sacrifices, but it's something completely different to teach your kids to do the same. 
any half-hearted effort to appease God with sacrifices or token efforts will not yield the outcome that we're hoping for. It's actually kind of insane when you stop and think about it. To get to a place where we feel good about disrespecting a holy living God so much that we teach our kids how to do the same thing. To be fair, our kids will one day actually grow up and they'll make choices for themselves. They'll decide if they will or will not serve God. But intentionally teaching them how to sin is as bad as not intentionally teaching them how to properly worship God. They may not want to do it, but at least your example will show them how to do it properly. The people, led by the priests and the prophets, began to worship the Creator. And I believe that teaching their children how to improperly worship God, how to tolerate sin, how to get puffed up because they were God's chosen people, apparently gave them some sort of different set of rules because they all participated in these rituals. And I think in doing so, what they invited was generational sins and the consequences of generational sins that wreak havoc on a society. And the Old Testament speaks about generational sins as if it's a blessing for one to have committed the sin that all of those behind him are going to suffer the consequences of that. But I think what we sometimes miss about generational sins is not only are they going to suffer the consequences, they're going to suffer the consequences because they learned it by watching you, all right? Over time, each generation becomes a little bit more tolerant, a little bit more accepting, a little more welcoming of false hypocritical worship that they no longer see what God called sin in his day to be sin today. Like an alcoholic that can drink 12 beers with no effect, the next generation of binge sinners is learning to do in excess what they were taught to do in moderation. Not understanding that it's a slow fade whose origins are in sin and whose fate always ends the same way unless they repent. Now listen, I'm not, I'm not harping on alcohol. I am mocking drunk and stupid. And I'll do that every day of my life. If you want to drink a beer, you drink a beer. But if it impacts your witness to somebody else, you need to reconsider that. If it impacts your witness to your children, you need to reconsider that. If they don't understand that you have built up a tolerance to anything, whether it be a, a substance or to a sin that leads them to think, well, I can, I can behave and do the exact same thing because I watched them, then you are leading them to a place where they don't understand how to properly do so. And what's worse than that is when we do that in relation to worship of God. It's okay for us to be immature in our worship to God as long as we're willing to suffer the consequences. Because what we do in moderation, the next generation will do in excess. And children like new believers lack the maturity to understand why the rules are seemingly different for some Christians and not for others. That's a relational issue. But it should serve as a reminder that someone is always watching us. And what the older and more mature amongst us are tolerating, we're going to see the next generation accept and bring into worship. Now, it sounds harsh that God would tell Jeremiah not to pray for these people. Because, you know, after all, God is good and he's loving and he's kind. And, and that somehow seems to say that he's going to overlook our sins because he's good and loving and kind. And we do this when we say, well, look, I've, I've been baptized. I go to the church each and every week, and my parents are good people, and, and they tell me Bible studies, and they, they make me go to church. 
And because they make me go to church, I'm somehow in the presence of, of this, this supernatural bubble that happens for uh, but a short time during the week that I must be covered as well. Because they're good church people. Because grandmama took me to church when I was little, I must be covered by the same covenant that God has made with them. But sadly, it's, it's not true. We must, for our own trust, our own faith, our own confidence, and our obedience to God, and any effort to minimize the holiness of God, his stance on sin, and our wasted effort to placate God with ritual and hypocritical worship without true repentance is just bad theology. I feel for Jeremiah. He had to struggle with the idea that God would not listen to his prayers on behalf of the people, and he, he was appointed by God, called out for him to be the spokesperson. And surely that communication should work both ways, but sadly, God just was not interested in the empty words that were followed by habitual sinful actions that he witnessed each and every day in his own house by his chosen people. They'd been given opportunity after opportunity after opportunity after opportunity after opportunity after opportunity and rejected God, and now he was not just punishing them, he was rejecting them. And Jeremiah's words fell on deaf ears. Jeremiah chapter 7 verse 27 says this, When you tell them all this, they will not listen to you. When you call to them, they will not answer. Therefore say to them, this is the nation that has not obeyed the Lord, it's God, or responded to correction. Truth has perished, it has vanished from their lips. In my opinion, I think Israel and Judah believed that the covenant that God made with Abraham covered over them. They thought that because of their favored status that God somehow would excuse their sin and not hold them accountable for their actions. They worshiped little g-gods in the big g-god's house, in his temple. They went to the main attraction so everybody could see what they were doing and they mocked God. They made false sacrifices in his temple. Oh, but they attended church regularly. They were there for everybody else to see what they were doing and who was there doing it. So what could God really say about that? I mean, after all, God rewards effort more than results, right? They were doing the very best they knew how to, unfortunately, because of them with their wasted efforts. But the people ignored Jeremiah. They had ignored God for a long time. Why should it be any different? And, and any call to repent, to worship properly, to surrender their hearts to God fell clearly on deaf ears. The truth had perished. It was sacrificed for warm fuzzies and self-righteousness and a tolerance for sin that made them feel better about how they lived their lives. The people not only publicly and communally accepted sin, they collectively, listen to this, they collectively, they democratically rejected God's truth. A little at a time until their sinful activity went mainstream, even into the house of God himself, they defiled themselves before the Lord. So how did the people get to this place? How does sin become so mainstream, especially among God's chosen people, his covenant people? You know, the Jews were the only people that God made a covenant with, and the people took that for granted. But how? Why? How did they get to this place? Jeremiah chapter 8, the prophet tells us that the, the people aren't as smart as birds who at least have a good sense to migrate south in the wintertime. 
people, spiritual beings made in the image of God, having an eternal soul within them, somehow cannot seem to run from sin, but instead run toward it with wild abandonment, with the praise and applause and the acceptance of everybody else in the community. In Judah's case, and I think in our circumstances today, the real tragedy that is painfully evident is the rampant biblical ignorance and biblical illiteracy that ran throughout the church and throughout the entire community. When you combine that lack of knowledge, belief, even effort in trying to study God's word, when you put that into a superficial Christianity that's characterized by a lack of discipleship, a lack of desire to want to be more like Jesus each and every day, it becomes so evident in the church, it comes so evident in the body. Get here on Sunday morning and they wipe the bow that it's not happening on a regular basis. That what they try to get done in their false worship on Sunday or their, their idol worship in the temple on, on, on the Sabbath, whatever that day was, but they don't wipe the sin from their hearts on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and at 7 o'clock and at 4 o'clock and whatever the time might be, when they don't do those things but just follow through the ritual, then we have everything we need right here in God's Word. But all we got to do, and this is the sad, simple truth, is listen and apply. Those people in Jeremiah's day, that was a long time ago, John. Yeah? Please don't tell me we've evolved since then. In Jeremiah chapter 8, verses 8, it describes those people and ourselves today. How can we say we are wise for we have the law of the Lord? When actually the lying pen of the scribes has handled it falsely, the wise will be put to shame. They will be dismayed and trapped since they have rejected the word of the Lord. What kind of wisdom do they have? See, we're not much different than the apostate people of Judah. We possess the scriptures, but we either don't practice them or we practice them falsely. It's not enough for us to have a Bible in our hand, but not God's word in our heart. It's not enough to possess information that does not lead to transformation. And it's not enough to know about God, but not know the God of the Bible. It's not enough to say, I didn't know, nobody told me. We are the most literate people ever. And you got more Bibles in your house than you probably got forks. You got more access to the living, holy word of God. And yet your everyday life is not one filled with bearing fruit, with keeping in repentance. It's not filled with being a blessing. It's not filled with being a, a person who seeks righteousness and justice. It's filled with rituals and habits. For those of you who are in the practice of criticizing God, his ways and his teaching, particularly those regarding sin, I'm willing to bet, I'm willing to bet, call me crazy, that your biblical knowledge is probably based upon what someone else taught you. Not what you gathered for yourself. And listen, maybe it was done by a guy like me who stands up and with great passion and conviction tells you something and it's wrong. But boy, he did it with such gusto. It's like that scene from Back to the Future. And Marty goes back in time and he meets... Doc, and he goes, who's the president of the United States? And he goes, Ronald Reagan. And he goes, of course. He has to look good on television. It's 
that's what we want today, right? We want to be entertained when we come to church. But you know, it, it's funny. In this day and age of fact-checking, I've found that most people don't have, they, they don't fact-check the stuff they agree with. Isn't that something? Pastor said, I don't have to tithe. Sounds good to me, gospel truth. Pastor said, as long as I don't look at pornography on Sunday, I'm good. Pastor said, if I'll just show up to church, 90% of success is already achieved. It's funny, though, when we do become fact-checkers against the things we don't agree with, that we suddenly become these experts because these things upset our lifestyles. I mean, right now, we've got a whole nation full of virologists, infectious disease experts, constitutional scholars, inflationary economists. I mean, pick your political hot button. You have worn Google out because it upset your delicate lifestyle. The pastor says that God told Jeremiah not to waste his time praying to him because he wasn't going to listen. That doesn't sound right. That's not a loving God. And friends, while I advocate an informed and educated society, I just wish that people, especially professing Christians, were as passionate about the scriptures and knowing the God of the Bible as they are about the many other things that impact their temporary life that doesn't make them anything more like Jesus. Which brings me to another reason I think the people who refuse to repent will suffer the judgment of God. They rationalize their circumstance, but refuse to be responsible for their own choices. You know, a common trait of a spoiled child is that they are never responsible for their own actions or consequences. If the devil didn't make them do it, it was their brother or their sister or their friend who apparently were all jumping off a bridge together. There's always someone else to blame, and the good news is as long as I accept your sin and you accept mine, we can both excuse our behavior and blame someone else for the outcome. I saw it on TikTok. It must be me. Facebook tells me. See, the people rejected God's correction and instead blamed him for their suffering. They tried to come up with their own plan to run to their fortified cities that God had provided for them, thinking again that God gave them these places of protection from their enemies, not realizing they had themselves become an enemy of God. Where do you run from a God who's everywhere? That God had provided the Assyrians, the Babylonians, or whoever, because in their minds, God was doing this to them as an example, not because of what they had done, but because that was God's prerogative and they were asking him to stop doing it because we're God's chosen people. We're his special, his favorite. You see, the false prophets and the priests of the day had misdiagnosed the suffering of the people and prescribed a failed remedy. The healing balm that was found in Gilead just east of the Jordan River would not be any help for the people. There was no bomb, there's no salve, there's no anointment, there's no cure, there's no pill for sin outside of true repentance. Sin cannot be cured by any active man because it was overcome and conquered by the act of one man named Jesus Christ. Baptism, church attendance, taking the Lord's Supper, even tithing will not cure sin, but repentance that leads to redemption through Jesus Christ will. And the thing that broke Jeremiah's heart was that his people were suffering. They were suffering because they believed the lies of the false hypocritical worship and failed to accept responsibility for their own actions. Catch this, if you will. Pay very close attention to this. 
false teachers and false doctrines might make you feel better about your sin, but there's no healing found in consistency in a consensus of, of apostasy. False teachers and false doctrines may make you feel better about your sin, but there is no healing found in a consistent consensus of apostasy. I can't even say that word, it's so terrible. We can't all get together and say as long as we're all wrong, then God's just going to take his hands off of us because we're his chosen people. Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 21 says, Since my people are crushed, this is Jeremiah, I'm crushed. Since my people are crushed, I'm crushed. I mourn and horror grips me. Is there no bomb in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then is there no healing for the wound of my people? You see, there's no relief for willful sin outside of repentance. Misery does not love company. It loves miserable company. And as long as we're all going down, we're all going down swinging together. It's a foolish notion to think that there's safety in numbers. If we all sin, then surely God will not destroy us all, especially because we're, after all, his chosen people. We're set apart and declared off limits by the Lord himself. And the bomb of Gilead might treat the symptoms, but it cannot heal a sinful heart. Only Jesus can do that. God's going to judge each and every one of us, and many are not going to survive that judgment. And while he did promise a remnant that would remain from Judah he did not tell us who that might be. And so to be perfectly honest with you, I don't like the odds when we consider the battle of good versus evil, the battle of, of God versus sin, or the battle of unrepentant man versus God himself. In case you're wondering, man always loses that battle. Being the only nation to have a covenant relationship with God, the, the Jews used his covenant as a license to sin, and the weeping prophet again called the people out for their hypocritical practices. The covenant did not excuse their sin. It turned them all into liars and slanderers and just detestable people, even to the point that Jeremiah cried out to the Lord and said, is there like a little shack out in the desert that I can run to to get away from this? I mean, you won't hear my prayers on behalf of the people. Your judgment is certainly coming, and I really don't want to be a part of that because, God, let's face it here, I don't even have biblical community around this place because I'm the only one who loves you, trusts you, and is out here telling these people to stop doing these crazy things. And, God, I think they're starting to get a little upset with me. I think they're starting to hate me. I think that when you look, God, and say, okay, I get it, if they all agree that sin is good, they're going to do it, even though it's still bad. But it's me versus the entire nation of Judah, and I don't like those odds. I can just hear God reminding Jeremiah, I didn't ask you to like the odds, I asked you to be obedient. And I told you that it was my message that I would protect, that my word would go forward and do what it's supposed to do, and that if you did not do this, that I'd embarrass you in front of the entire nation. Jeremiah instead wept. His heart was heavy and hurt for his people because he was ministering these people with all sin, and he knew it. And he hoped that maybe they would turn from their sin and repent. He may not have been permitted to pray for the people, but God did not stop him from weeping for them and calling them to repent. By all accounts, they hated him. Jeremiah was actually a really good pastor. Many of you have seen me weep in the pulpit you've listened to my voice crack, you've heard my pleas for you to submit to the Lord, repent of your sins, and accept his grace and forgiveness. And I have to be honest, there are many times I don't feel very effective as a pastor. 
when I look back over the metrics and I say that we've been here for seven years, we don't have a building, we don't have a bigger church, we've only baptized a handful of people, none of which I don't think are even in this church anymore. I look at that and I, I, I see that as not being successful. I internalize that and I carry that burden of what that success looks like. And from the world's point of view, I fail. I'm not the only pastor that feels that way. There are people in our church that even look at all these man-made metrics and say, well, we've got this going on. We're financially here. We've got this many people. We've got this, all those things. We measure all the success. But, but how do we and when do we get down to measuring these people are obedient and they love God? Whether there's 12 of them or there's one of them. I actually think I'm a pretty good communicator. I'm by no means the world's greatest pastor, and I think it'd be a little bit arrogant to get to a place to say that I am. Not to say I haven't met some of those guys that would probably have that monogrammed on their shirts. But I think all of us, pastors included, we should strive for excellence in what we do. That excellence is defined by God, not by man. That excellence is defined by our obedience to trust him, not in how effective we are with other people. People don't respond to man's message. They respond to God's call. People don't reject the message of it from their lives. People may offer a number of excuses about how mean that church is and how unloving they are. The word of God is a double-edged sword. And it divides bone from muscle and tissue. Our obedience and our faithfulness is what satisfies God. Not our pomp and our circumstance, not our building, not our numbers, not our pastor, not our children's ministry or our music. We can't make people respond to God, but we can tell them the truth. We can teach them to obey all that God has commanded, but a bunch of people learning how to escape hell without learning to love Jesus with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their mind, and all their strength is not the kind of church that's going to change a community or a world. I'd baptize anybody who wants to be baptized today. We'll go down to Marlin and Cookie's house. If it ain't heated, we'll throw a toaster in the pool. And the pop and all those things. And we'll bury you with Christ in baptism and rise you up to a new life. But the worst thing we could do is turn you loose after that and not tell you how, what it is to worship God and to know him and to follow him and to open up your Bible and to take up your cross daily and follow him. To teach you that repentance is not an event. It's not a one-time thing you do to check the box and get out of hell. That repentance is a spiritual discipline. And that every day it is hypocritical for us to not repent to the Lord for how we violated him. For how we've broken his heart. For how we've turned against him. And for how we have taught the generation behind us to do in excess what we did in moderation. We have excessively lacked repentance in our own lives for generation, for generation, for generation to the point to where we, we had all the answers right here in front of us. We had an entire people group that gave us hundreds of years of history of what not to do, and we ignored it. 
We chose not to even open the book we could say about who we are to where God tells us who he is. Judah had a pride that led them to unfaithfulness. They were entitled to the point that they didn't think the rules applied to them. They were God's chosen people. They were circumcised after all. They bore the mark on their bodies but not on their hearts. They wore crosses around their necks, Jesus stickers on their cars. They worshiped idols on their couch. They thought their kids could do the same thing. And as others watched, as other nations gathered around them, these circumcised chosen people of God acted sinfully. And it was confusing, and it still is today. How can Christians act the way they do? Like the people of Judah, they're deceived by a covenant that they don't understand or respect. They're pompous and arrogant and hypocritical. They tolerate sin to the point that it no longer bothers them. They prefer to be entertained by false prophets instead of being taught to submit to God. Judah boasted in their status, not in the God of their salvation. We boast in being saved from hell, but we can't tell you what we're saved to. I wonder how many of you today could, if I were to ask you what you're saved to, not what you're saved from, but what you're saved to, could tell me. Well, I just don't know God's will for my life. Have you read your Bible lately? I'm not sure why God's not blessing me. Don't eat of this tree. Don't do these 10 things. Don't do these 613. I got a novel idea. Love God, love people. Good enough for Jesus. Judah wasn't much different than our current culture where a million followers followers can give us a big thumbs up for something stupid and because of the popularity of it it must not be sinful we boast that the larger the audience the less sinful the act our nation turned its back on God made unlawful sacrifices in his house they were led to do so by the priests and the prophets and the parents of the generations before them. They were God's chosen people and they took that for granted. They didn't have the sense that birds did to migrate. Instead, they just ran right into danger without knowing they could escape it. In Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23, if you have your Bible, I encourage you to turn with me. This is what the Lord says. Let not the wise boast of their wisdom or the strong boast of their strength or the rich boast of their riches, but let the one who boasts boast about this, that they have the understanding to know me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness and justice and righteousness on earth. For in these I delight. If you want to know what it means to capture God's attention, if you want to know what non-hypocritical worship looks like, it's not just raising your hands and crying when a happy song comes by. It is practicing kindness and justice and righteousness in the name of the Lord. It is boastful. It is about telling people this of the Lord himself and what he's done in our lives, he can do in your lives too. And if you can't say it with words, then maybe you ought to do it with how you live your life. The people of Judah boasted about being a covenant people. They thought it gave them liberty to sin, so they went to church every Sunday and they worshiped false gods. 
They worship false gods like attendance and spiritual busyness. But they never invested in knowing God, and as a result of their actions, it did not reflect a transformed heart that exercised kindness, justice, and righteousness. For those who try to get by with external pretense that looks good on the surface but refuses to give God your full heart, judgment is inescapable. There is no place for you to run. There is no city, there is no fortress, there is no priest, there is no, no friend, there is no, no justification by the millions for your sinful actions that God will not find you. See, we read that not sleep forever because no one is immune from his judgment. And look with me in verse 25 of chapter 9. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all who are circumcised only in the flesh, Egypt, Judah, Edom, Ammon, Moab, and all who live in the wilderness and distant places, for all these nations are really uncircumcised, and even the whole house of Israel is uncircumcised in heart. You know, there's a lot that can be told about someone by the company that they keep, and if you look at this list of people, Egypt enslaved them, Edom, Ammon, Moab, they chased after uh, Israel and, and Judah and punished them for years and years and years and years and years and yet Judah is listed amongst them. They're not any different. Jeremiah wraps up his temple sermon in chapter 10 and he reiterates that the practice of worshiping idols is foolish and unacceptable and he leaves the people with a warning that other nations of the world, not God's covenant people, who worship idols made by their own hands and that Judah should not allow this example. God's going to judge them too in due time, but not until he uses them to punish Israel for its sins. The nations place these idols in fields, listen to this, like a farmer puts a scarecrow out to protect his crops. Our friend Phil used to farm rice out in this community, seven miles south of I-10 and seven miles north of I-10. Could you imagine him just putting a single scarecrow out there? That scarecrow has no power. It makes the farmer feel a little better, I guess, but it has no power. It's nothing more than a foolish superstition that distracts people from seeking real help and real deliverance and real protection from the true God. And Jeremiah urged the people not to try to be like the other nations because if they do, they'll end up in ruin just like the people they're imitating. Idol worship only reveals the affection of one's heart towards God and toward an unacceptable substitute. For the past several weeks, I've talked to you about idol worship and what that looks like in the scriptures and what Jeremiah says about it specifically. And usually, he talks about idols being statues made of wood and stone. They're man-made objects that people bestow a godlike attribute upon, probably because those, those idols allowed them to feel better about how they worshipped, what rules they followed, what choices they made, and what sins they embraced. And I guess, if we're being honest with you, those idols never talk back. That used to be the case, but now my Xfinity remote actually talks back to me. My phone now talks back to me. To be fair, the elements of idol worship are really not all that benign. But the general idea is that idols, are they only derive their power by what's handed over to them by those who worship them. Not like God, who is already powerful and holy on his own. To the point that people who make idols to help them get revenge on their neighbors or idols to help bring rains and droughts. They worship these idols from grain offerings to child sacrifice. It just gets a little worse. 
the idols that they and I think we worship today are senseless and foolish and sadly not powerless to impact our lives. Warren Wiersbe said that said this about idols. He says, that on which I center my attention and my affection and for which I am willing to sacrifice is my God. And if it isn't Jesus Christ, then it's an idol. That on which I center my attention and my affection for which I am willing to sacrifice is my God. And if it isn't Jesus Christ, then it's an idol. I know this not, might not be very popular, but I got to tell you, when I drive by sports fields on a Sunday and I see them more crowded in the churches in our community, I can't help but think that if we haven't sacrificed our children's yet on the idol of sports, oh, there's good godly people that are out there. They just want their kids to be successful. Teach them how to worship God. They can only play peewee football until they're 10 years old. They can worship God for their entire lifetime. So what makes idol worship so bad? First of all, it detracts our attention away from God who deserves it. He deserves nothing less than our very best. Secondly, idols are man-made and they elevate the created and not the creator. And finally, and worst of all, I think, identity because we become like the idols that we worship. Empty, superficial, and utterly useless. God's covenant people were set apart and chosen to be a light into the nations, to be an example and they're going to be made an example of, unfortunately, they're going to be an example of what not to do. Earlier, I told you that God told Jeremiah not to pray for these idol worshiping sinners. God had already made up his mind that judgment was coming upon these unrepentant from judging the people, but he did pray. He wasn't disobedient because he didn't pray for those people. He prayed for himself, and he asked God to be merciful. Jeremiah chapter 10, we get to the end of his sermon. He says this in verse 23, Lord, I know that people's lives are not their own. It is not for them to direct their steps. Discipline me, Lord, but only in due measure. Not in your anger, or you will reduce me to nothing. Pour out your wrath on the nations that do not acknowledge you and on the peoples who do not call on your name, for they have devoured Jacob. They have devoured him completely and destroyed his homeland. In three areas, Jeremiah pray to the Lord for mercy and he says Lord have mercy on these people because they're only people and they don't know any better but I'm doing my best down here as a father in Psalm 103 says as a father shows compassion for his children so the Lord shows compassion for those who fear him father be merciful upon them even though they deserve everything that's coming they deserve because that would completely destroy them aren't you glad God does not give you deserve Finally, be merciful and punish those nations that are coming against Judah because they want to completely destroy her. God would show his mercy by only exiling them for about 70 years. And for all that he did for the people, for his prayers for mercy. Do you know how the people in Judah responded to Jeremiah? Chapter 26 will tell us that they're going to arrest him and sentence him to death that the priests were more willing to kill Jeremiah than they were to trust God and repent of their sins. They would rather God spare their lives than Jeremiah. But in chapter 36 of Jeremiah, he's going to actually spare him and cut him loose. But the sentence, catch this, the people fired their preacher for telling the truth. They attacked his character for calling out their sin. And they banned him from the temple that they desecrated with hypocritical worship. 
You know, I think that's why so many are afraid of preaching the reality of sin and the consequences of embracing sin within the church. They fear the congregation, the loss of a paycheck, the criticism of lukewarm, unrepentant people more than they fear the Lord himself. Friends, I know I struggle with that. I want to be liked. I want to be appreciated. I have an ego that likes affirmation. But I have been convicted this week especially that the praise of man is sometimes my own idol. And that idol worship, that which I would sacrifice your soul, isn't godly and isn't what God has called me to do. It doesn't get any simpler than that. Your sin deserves the wrath of God and his punishment. We can love you all day long and we can make you feel better about your sin, but the truth is your sin should physically make you sick. Sin against God. Your status with him, because you're in church today, doesn't give you a hall pass for sin tomorrow. Because what you do in moderation, your children will do in excess. Christians, stop teaching the generation behind you what lukewarm, insincere, hypocritical worship looks like. You're going to be judged for that. And while you might be judged for that, they may spend an eternity in hell because of it. I skipped a passage of scripture in chapter 7 if you want to turn back to this. Jeremiah chapter 7 verse 30 describes what that judgment's going to look like. My eyes declares the Lord. They have set up their detestable idols in the house that bears my name and have defiled it. They have built the high places of Topheth and the valley of Din-Hanam to burn their sons and daughters in the fire, something I did not command. So beware, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when people will no longer call it Topeth or the valley of Din-Hanam, but the valley of slaughter. For they will bury the dead in Topath until there is no more room. Then the carcasses of this people will become food for the birds and the wild animals, and there will be no one to frighten them away. I will bring an end to the sounds of joy and gladness and to the voices of bride and bridegroom in the towns of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem, for the land will become desolate. When you read through that passage in the next few verses of chapter 8, what you'll find out is that hell is a literal, real place. This topath in the valley of Ben-Hanam translate in both the Hebrew and the Greek to a literal garbage dump. Matthew chapter 5 will tell us that this is Gehenna, the place where Judas would hang himself and his guts would spill out for defying and for, for, for turning his back and turning Jesus over for 30 pieces of silver. It's not God's desire that anyone would go there, but that entire garbage dump of a valley that burns with fires where people sacrifice their own children will be filled with the bodies of the even those who claim to be from the household of God but do not know him but only know about him. For those of you who profess to be Christians, I hope that you hear that repentance is a lifestyle. It's a daily taking up of your cross and following Jesus. It's a, not a one-time event. It's a powerful example of your dependence, trust, and everyday sincere worship of God. We all sin and fall short of his glory, so why don't we, we repent every day as well? Repentance is a reflection of God's work in your life and his desire to work in the lives of others. 
Repentance is a lifestyle of loving God and being in right relationship with him. Repentance is an opportunity to worship God and to show others how to do the same thing. Because after all, what we do in moderation, our children will do in excess. Father, I really don't like this message. Because it doesn't make us feel good and warm and fuzzy. And in to where we're offended by the truth. Father, we don't bear fruit with the keeping of repentance. And we read this story sometimes, unfortunately, as anecdotal, as a fictional possibility, as something that happened so long ago, but, but in God's providence, he's evolved and so has humanity. So something like this will never happen again. But Lord, it happens each and every day. Father, I identify with the prophet this morning. And Lord, I have wept with him this week. And I don't know, God, if you have told my heart not to pray for these people, but I'm going to do the same thing as Jeremiah, and I'm going to beg you to be merciful. Have mercy on them, oh God. And God, I know in this room there are people who desire to be better but better is not good enough they desire to not let sin control their lives in such a way that it that it impacts their their social status or it impacts how people view them but god what they need to desire is you to chase after you to know you to love you to obey you and to be like your son jesus and so, Father, I pray no one gets this misunderstanding of cleaning up their behaviors. That there's some sort of reformation that is not transformation that comes from, from external things, Lord, not from a heart that is repentant and chasing after you. And so, God, have mercy on them. And we know there, there are those in this room, there are many more that have Jesus Christ. But those who have proclaimed that, those who have received that and call you Father, have mercy on them. Lord, let us not delight in our consensus of apostasy. Let's not make popular that as long as we're all outside of your will, we're okay. But Father, let us rejoice together in redemption and the repentance that comes from, from accepting what you know about us already and accepting the forgiveness that only comes from you. Father, for the generation behind us and the generation after that, should you choose not to come back for a hundred years, for a hundred days, or not until tomorrow? God, have mercy on us for what we've taught them how not to worship you. Father, would you speak to their hearts in ways for those who, who have yet to bow to you, will you call them to you to be your own? Father, thank you for your humor, if you will that you would land this message on a day that we're going to take the Lord's. Search my heart, O oh Lord. Reveal in me what needs to be taken care of. And as we honor the death and resurrection of your son, Jesus, we thank you for his blood and his body.
Father, I pray that we would take to heart that what we do in moderation, our children would do in excess. And Lord, let us no longer moderately worship you. Let us be like David and get to a place where we have not yet begun to defile ourselves before our Lord. Father, thank you for Jesus in his name. Amen. This morning we're going to observe the Lord.